Good morning, everybody. First John chapter one. That's where we're at today. This is one of my favorite letters. One of my favorite letters that have absolutely changed my life personally when it comes to the scriptures. I've spent um, probably the most time um, digging into the book of First John because it's so deep, it's so rich. Um, I love the profound connections that the Apostle John makes um, to his gospel. If you didn't know, John the Apostle is the author behind this letter to the church. And he's also the one who wrote um, the gospel according to John, the life and ministry of Jesus. And he's the one who got to see the apocalyptic revelation of Jesus, which is what we call the revelation. And so um, he's behind all three. And first, John also has uh, two other follow-up letters. There's second John, there's third John, right? There's, so he's, he's written a lot of scripture. And so when you, when you start to recognize the, um, the commonalities between these letters and the themes, the, the, um, the patterns, the repeating words that he uses, the ideas that he loves to communicate, um, it, it's profound, man. And so I'm not gonna waste any more time. Let's just jump into 1 John, all right? I don't know how long we'll be in 1 John, to be honest, today. My prayer, my desire is to crank out chapter one. I'm in no rush. I just think that's that's more than enough scripture uh, to last us this time. And um, I can see us finishing First John in either the next two or three weeks, okay? And then as the Lord you know, leads, I, I do intend to jump into Romans or the Gospel of Matthew. So we'll see. We'll see what he has for us. But let's just read this opening chapter um, as John is lovingly in his old age, warning, uh, exhorting, correcting, um, and, and building up the believers. Because when John's writing this, he's in his, his elder years, he's elder John. And so he's not the young, hip John he used to be. And now he's looking at the church from the vantage point of an, of an old sage. And so you're gonna see a lot of that, that almost fatherly, grandpa-like exhortation. So starting in verse one, let's just read the whole chapter and then we'll back it up and mm, break it down. Uh, John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. And so whatever this word of life is, this life, um, it's not some you know, philosophical concept or idea. It has arms and legs. Whatever this is, it's something that John has interacted with personally. And he's sharing his testimony, his eyewitness testimony. He's looked upon the word of life. He's heard the word of life. Um, he's seen the word of life. He's touched the word of life. And he says, we've seen it and we testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen, that which we have heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we've heard from him, and we proclaim to you, ready, that God is light. So this is the message, these are the things that John is write, wanting to write about and remind the church of, that he's actually heard from the eternal life, which he makes to be a person. Okay, so in him is no darkness at all, referring to God, 
Right? If he's going to be the essence and the substance and the source of light, there can be no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, if you say you're a believer and a follower of Jesus and you've really been born again, while you walk in darkness, well, we lie and we're not practicing the truth. But here's the contrasting lifestyle. Here's the other option. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Listen, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, well, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us. So forgiving is one thing. To release someone of the debt, to declare someone forgiven is one thing. To cleanse someone of all unrighteousness and the potential for any of that unrighteousness to stain the soul. That seems to be what's implied here. That's an entirely different thing. Now, if we say we have not sinned, well, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, as we navigate just this first chapter, you've probably already noticed a lot of repeating words. You've seen the word life quite a bit. You've seen the word light and fellowship and darkness, um, truth, right? Sin in the last part of the chapter. Um, there's a lot of repeating ideas that will get built upon later in the coming, you know, remaining four chapters. But for now, what we want to do is establish what John is really getting at. And look at the way he opens his letter. Just comes out swinging, that which was from the beginning. So whatever he wants to really talk about, whatever is the subject and the focus of this letter, it's something or someone that is from the beginning. And here are another uh, few de descriptions of this which is from the beginning. He says, we've, we've heard this. We've... We've actually seen this with our eyes. We've looked upon it. We've touched it with our hands concerning the word of life. So let me take you to Genesis chapter one, verse one, just to remind you of how the scriptures open. The narrative of redemption opens up. Genesis 1, 1, it says in the beginning, right? In the beginning, which is kind of like from the beginning in 1 John, God created the heavens and the earth. In the very beginning, there's creation, there's structuring, there's ordering, there's organizing, right? There's bringing uh, life out of the chaotic waters of death and destruction. There's bringing, he's bringing structure and putting the seas where they belong and separating and bringing the land up. So in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. That's a summary statement of what's about to unfold throughout the rest of the creation um, story. And so I, the reason I bring that up is because there's something about this statement, that which is from the beginning, that, is, that should recall the creation narrative. It should, it should bring to mind, oh my gosh, this, I remember the Bible opening with, in the beginning God creates the heavens and the earth. Are you telling me that from the beginning of that, from the very beginning of what you want to call time, space, and matter, whatever John has heard, seen, touched, looked upon, that thing or this person w was there? Was there? Let me take you to John chapter one, verse one through three. Okay. Again, this is the same apostle, right? In the same, right? Same ideas and, and patterns and themes, but in the form of his gospel narrative when he's, you know, recalling the life and ministry of Jesus. 
So John the Apostle in, in the Gospel of John opens his Gospel like this. It says, in the beginning, it's like he's copying Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, was the Word. That's very different than God creating the heavens and the earth, which is to bring uh, life and order and structure out of chaos and, and something that is unformed. This is, this is uniquely different. Jesus, whoever the Word is, I don't, Jesus, obviously, the Word, He's there in the beginning. So you should think at creation, and Colossians confirms this. Um, uh, what other books confirm this? Philippians confirm, confirms this. Hebrews chapter 1 confirms this. That Jesus, the Word, and you're going, how do we know it's Jesus is the Word? Hold on, I'll show you in a minute. That in the beginning, He just is. He pre-exists whatever beginning state creation finds itself in. Time, space, and matter, He pre-exists that. He precedes that to actually bring that into existence alongside the Father. And so Jesus in the beginning is there as the Word. I'll take you to Revelation 22 to show you that He indeed is the Word of God. And the Word is with God. Now that's key, not just only to John's Gospel, but also to the letter of 1 John. That whoever the Word is, which I've told you is Jesus, and I'll give you scripture to back that up. He not only is there in the beginning, as if to pre-exist time itself, and, and however you make sense of space and matter coming into existence, He, he pre-exists, you know, the, the creation, he, he also is alongside God. He's with God. Okay, but also, John wants you to understand the word, whoever he's talking about, is God. And you say, you know, it says was God. No, he's talking about looking back at the very beginning of creation, of, you know, um, our, our world itself. Jesus, the word, is there, and he was God. Not to say he stopped being God or he's no longer God, but what's unique about this concept is that John is actually giving explicit language to a, a, a concept in the Old Testament that's there but not explicitly clear, which is that there is one who is alongside the God of Israel, yet reveals himself to be the God of Israel and functions as the God of Israel among his people. Whether that's, you know, with Abraham or Gideon or Samson's parents or uh, the angel of the Lord all throughout the scriptures, Joshua and Moses leading the people of Israel. John is slotting Jesus, the word, into that, that unique category of one who is alongside God, yet is actually functioning and operating as God himself. He's equal with the Father, he, but he's distinct from in terms of um, not being the Father. So the Word, uh, and however you, whatever language you bring to that, um, just, you just got to be careful how you navigate that. The point is that in the beginning, John's Gospel opens with us seeing, hopefully, uh, the creation narrative alongside whoever this Word is, and you should see the two as going together. You should see the Word as being there in the beginning, bringing creation uh making creation happen, um, and being there alongside the Father, whatever role He's playing, executing the Word, accomplishing uh, whatever is the purpose of the Father in creation. Um, it's beautiful. And so let me take you to, Re I think it's in Revelation 22. I didn't plan to bring this up, but I just have to, and I'm going to tell you that Jesus is the Word. Revelation 19.13. I was three chapters off. Who cares, right? It, it's there. 
Revelation 19.13. This is back it up. John says, hey, I saw heaven opened, you know, like you do on a Sunday evening. And behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, crowns, authority, power, rule. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called, watch this, is the word of God. Is the word of God. And then you go down, verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. Does Jesus have a tattoo? Does, I don't know. I don't know if that's what he's saying. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that's the point, is his title, his official you know, um, position as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the Word of God is who he's describing. That's who John wants you to know he has heard from, like he's actually heard the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the eternal word emanating from the Father, he's heard his voice. He's seen with his eyes. He's looked upon. And he's not just saying himself, he's saying we. Talking about the apostolic testimony, saying we as the apostles and whatever eyewitnesses were there to see the resurrected Savior. We've actually heard from, seen, looked upon. And here's where it gets a little more like, wow, I never considered that. He says, and we've touched with our hands. We've touched with our hands. That's incredible. And he goes, I'm, I'm talking about the word of life. And you, that's interesting. You can't touch a concept. You can't hear from an experience in a, in, a, in a tangible, visible way, just a philosophical idea. So is John talking about something that is, is not able to interact with this physical, material world? No. He's talking about someone that has actually entered into the physical material world to interact with humanity and, and be the bridge between us and the Father, namely the word of life, okay? And he says, the life was made manifest, which means the life at one point in human history was concealed, concealed, hidden. That's the hidden nature of who Jesus is all throughout the Old Testament is if you're not really looking for truth, if you're not looking for the revelation of God, you're going to miss every single breadcrumb that the biblical authors leave and God leaves for you to find the person of Jesus. He's all throughout the Old Testament. And so the life is made manifest in an actual like visible experiential way where the apostles go, holy, are you telling us, like when we read our Hebrew Bible, the, the, the one who is alongside the Father yet distinct from the Father and, and operating as God, equal with God, you're him. Like life itself, if you were to take the whatever the tree of life offers symbolically and put arms and legs on eternal life, you're saying that's, that's who Jesus is? That's who you've seen and walked with? What an experience, man. That blows Disney World out of the water, doesn't it? To walk with the eternal life himself? To, to, to live life with him? To sleep where he sleeps? To eat when he eats? To, to walk with him for three and a half years? to watch the progressive revelation of his character and his power, man. And he's going, the life was made manifest. Now, if you go back to John's gospel, which I have to, by the way, like for those of you that are like, stop jumping to John's gospel, man. I have to, because again, it's the same author and apostle behind the gospel of John and 1 John. And there's a lot of parallel. There's a lot of connections. 
For instance, in John chapter 1, verse 4, this is what um, John says, opening his, his gospel. In him, referring to Jesus, was life. And just to make it clear that Jesus is linked with creation, Genesis 1, John will go on to say he was in the beginning with God, which I should have read that. I forgot to read that. He was in the beginning with God. So he's not just there in the beginning. He's there in the beginning alongside the Father. And just to be clear, all things were made through him. Not some things, not most things, not only a category of things. Everything that exists was made through the Word, who is a person and not just a concept. And without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, nothing is made without the Word. Nothing is sustained without the Word. Without the Word, nothing exists. In Him, this Word that brings creation into existence, in Him was life, right? So not only is the Word uh, the perfect revelation of God, not only is the Word equal with God, not only is the Word the perfect prophetic Word from the Father, which is what Hebrews tells us. You know, until, up until this time, God spoke in, in times past through the prophets, but now he's spoken by his son, which you're supposed to see Jesus as the best, perfect prophetic word. Like there's no prophet that's ever touched him. He's so much better because he actually is God in the flesh. How much better of a revelation can you get than that? You can't. So in him, the word was life. So what John wants you to understand is there's a deep connection between spiritual life and the word. Not only does spiritual life result from hearing and believing in the word, but the word himself accomplishes the way for us to enter into life. And so there's all these different connections and then the word em empowers you to go and live a life that's consistent with his character, his word, his promises, so that now the word of God is actually becoming flesh and bones through your life. Not to say you're replacing Jesus, not to say you're adding to Jesus, but to say that his ways are becoming your own, right? The Torah, the law is actually becoming manifest through your life because you believed in the life who made way for your life because he actually accomplished uh, perfect eternal life through his death and resurrection. And so in him was life. And the life was the light of men. So in, in the letter to the church in 1 John, um, John is also going to make this connection, which is there's a connection between life and light. And at times they're the exact same thing. At times, there's, there's a difference between the two, but they're two sides of the same coin, okay? But I want to take you back to 1 John uh, real quick, just to remind you that we're looking at the life that's not just a title for who Jesus is. It, it accurately sums up what he is in essence. In other words, like for Jesus to be someone who gives eternal life, that's not just like a title he has that he earned or achieved. This is the substance and the essence of Jesus himself is since he is life and the source of life and he offers life, if you're disconnected from him, then the logical conclusion is you have no life. 
So he gives eternal life because he is the essence of life itself. In other words, if you're wondering what is life, look at Jesus. If you're wondering what, what is the fullness of life, look at Jesus. If you're wondering what does it look like to live the best possible life this side of heaven in expectation of Jesus, it's look at Jesus who is life. And so when John is calling him the life, he's also probably referencing this statement from Jesus when he's talking to Mary and Martha. I think right here he's talking to Martha. And Lazarus died recently. Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha sent to Jesus days ago to come and heal Lazarus before he died. Only thing is Jesus allowed him to die to produce a greater miracle. Because in that resurrection, or in that bringing someone back to life, there's a stronger and better revelation of his character and power. It's one thing for Jesus to be like, be healed, bruh. It's another thing for him to be like, hey, you've been dead for a few days, huh? It's time to come out of the grave, buddy. That's a, that's a different power level. <laughs> so Jesus is talking to Martha. And she's going, yeah, I know my brother's going to rise again. I get that, like at the resurrection. And he goes, Martha, look at me. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies physically, temporarily, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me, guess what? They will never die. That's weird, Jesus. You just said, even though I die, I'll live. Now you're saying I'll never die. You'll never die in a spiritual separation from God kind of way. So you might experience physical death. Everyone's going to, unless you see Jesus. It's freaking awesome. But as believers, we know that we are not going to experience eternal spiritual death, which biblically, all it means is you're separated from God who is life. You don't have to make that concept any more complicated than that. Well, how long does it last? Is there fire involved? Is there torment? Are you outside the kingdom in the new Jerusalem? What are you, what's going on? The point is, Adam and Eve were told, in the day you eat of the forbidden fruit, you'll die. They eat from the fruit, they're still there. What does happen though, is they're exiled from what? From the garden presence of God. So that was true death. And through that, of course, physical death entered the world, but that's not the main problem. That's just like, um, what's it called? A symptom of the real issue, which is that human beings are separated from God. And if you're separated from life, what is there outside of the garden presence of God? There's nothing but death. And so Jesus is saying, look, if you believe in me, you'll never die. The, the second death won't touch you. Spiritual death is not going to be your destiny. You won't be in exile from the Father because I grant you not just entrance into the kingdom, but Jesus gives us fellowship with the Father, which we're going to see in the next few verses of 1 John. And so Jesus wants us to understand. He could have just said, I am the life. But he goes even farther. He goes, I am the resurrection. Like it's one thing for Jesus to say, look, with me you live. It's another thing for him to say, hey, you'll conquer death and never die again with me. And that's exactly what he's going to demonstrate with Lazarus. Why do you think he let Lazarus die? Why do you think he let down Mary and Martha's expectations? Why do you think he disappointed them? Because he did something better. He did something way better to be like, yo, Lazarus, time to come out. Lazarus goes, he has to obey, right? 
Life happens when Jesus speaks. And there's a profound connection, not just in Jesus being the Word of God personified, but in Jesus being the perfect Word emanating from the Father, which is the message of salvation in the form of Jesus coming to humanity. Jesus is, the, is not just the one carrying the message. He's what the message is about. He's the substance of the message. And so you can preach the gospel or say it's the gospel, but if you're not talking about Jesus, it's no longer the gospel message that saves. He is the focus. He's what brings substance to our message of salvation. Without him, there is no salvation. This is also what Jesus says in John 14, which by the way, notice how every one of these quotes are from John's gospel. John's gospel. Jesus says to Thomas, because he goes, look, you know the way where I'm going, Thomas. Thomas goes, no, we have no idea where you're going. How can we know the way if we don't even know where you're going? And Jesus goes, I am the way, Thomas. I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets into the kingdom of God. No one enters into God's family or into heaven except through me. What does it mean for Jesus to be the way, truth, and life? It means he's exclusive. There's one way, but he's all-inclusive, meaning anyone can enter through him. Anyone can. But it does limit your options, doesn't it? When God says there's one way to enter into the kingdom of heaven and have eternal life, and it's through my son. Other than that, without him, you don't get to the Father. You don't get to God. You don't get to eternal life. Because Jesus, you're supposed to look at Genesis and see the tree of life as what Jesus represents. I'm not saying he's just a tree, but all throughout scripture, there's a, there's a lot of connections between people being trees. We bear fruit. You know, we're rooted. Um, all these kinds of things. We dry and wither up, or sometimes we're flourishing, you know, based on where we're planted. Jesus is, you're supposed to see, oh my gosh, like, even though we were exiled from the garden presence of God and cut off from the tree of life, what God does is he actually brings the tree of life to us in the form of his son. That's what he does. That's exactly what he does. And there was a, a, a carabim, the flaming sword, by the way, guarding the entrance into the garden, which, by the way, <laughs> that's insane. You don't see that in front of Target or any other stores. But God's really keeping people out of the garden to make a statement, no one gets in. No one gets in. What Jesus does is he opens the way back into the garden by coming into our world and bringing the tree of life to us so that we can eat of him. Like he says, he's the bread from heaven. And then we can have eternal life and come back into the garden presence of God with him through his son. That's what Jesus does. That's what he does. You go back to 1 John, if I can find my way there. And John just really wants you to understand. He's, he's excited, man. He's like, he's that kid that just discovered his favorite thing for the next five years. And he's, he's telling everyone, man, sometimes my son, he'll, he'll find a little hobby where he just has to tell everyone, everyone, everyone he introduces himself to, strangers on the streets that, that do not care, right? Random Karens in the grocery store, mom and dad over and over. Like when he's excited about something, he'll make sure you know. And that's what John's doing right here. He's, he's like a little kid in a, in a candy store going, 
You guys don't get it. Like we we saw eternal life. We've walked with him. We ate with him. We we slept where he slept. We 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 touched him. We hugged him. We we got to experience life with him. He led us. He walked on fruit. He was walking on water. We saw him. The eternal life that was hidden all throughout human history and now revealed to us. We walked with him. He's a person. He's very intimate and experiential, and he wants a relationship with us. We've seen it. We testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life. Now, you're going to see a very similar statement that John made um, uh, to the one that John made in his gospel, where he says, look, um, you know, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, now he says the eternal life was with the Father. Just to be clear, so there's no confusion. When he says the Word was alongside God, what he means is Jesus, the Word of God, embodied, personified with arms and legs, the Word of God emanating from the Father was next to and alongside God the Father. But that makes him distinct from the Father, right? There's no way of getting around that. And he was made manifest to us. Now, of course, the nature of God is complex, meaning it's like lifetimes of studying would never bring you to a full revelation of who he really is. He's, he's incomprehensible is the technical term, but he's knowable, right? That's, that's what this is really pointing to. And he was made manifest to us. It, without Jesus, like pretend like Jesus never came and there's no concept of eternal life. If you heard eternal life, and I know this is what I mean. This is eternal life. But you have no grid for that. And you're going, eternal life. Yeah, I can't really comprehend that. What, what God has to do is reveal his son to you in order for you to understand what eternal life is. You could spend a million lifetimes meditating on the concept and the person of eternal life. You'd spend so much of your time. The beautiful thing about God is, is he's bottomless and endless and infinite. And so there's always something more to understand and, and, and comprehend deeper. And so w when it says that the eternal life is made manifest or revealed, that's fantastic. John is excited. He really wants you to get excited about what he's excited about. And he's not going to stop writing until you're excited about the eternal life like he is. And that's what our life is supposed to be spent mostly doing, is uh, growing in relationship with the one who is eternal life, meditating on him, knowing him better, growing in sanctification because I come to understand him deeper. Your life should be spent meditating on the one who is eternal life. That doesn't mean you don't evangelize. It doesn't mean you don't feed the homeless. It doesn't mean you don't start ministry. It means, well, anything you do for God is going to be rooted in that understanding that you have of who he is. Who he is. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, John says. He's not keeping it to himself. <laughs> Just to be clear, there, there are some things we're so excited about that we're almost overprotective. And we're like, oh, I, don't, I don't want anyone kind of jumping into this because they might ruin it. And I don't want them to break this. And I really love it like my son. Some toys he gets, he's overprotective. And we're trying to teach him, hey buddy, like, do you love your sister more than this toy? And sometimes he'll say, yes I do. And we'll, okay, let's stop. Let's think about that. 
You love this toy more than, uh, no. I love my, my sister more than my toy. Okay, then don't be more protective over your toy than you are of your sister. Don't love your toy more than you love your sister, right? But John here, he's not hiding something because it's so valuable. Quite the opposite. Whatever he has is so valuable that he has to share it. And this is a, a good kind of demonstration of what I mean. If you held the cure to every cancer that has ever existed and ever will exist, and you have the cure, and you can replicate it and you can get it to scientists and somehow you came across it, would you keep that to yourself? Depending on how selfish and greedy you are and how much you love money, some of you might say, well, I don't know. But for people that actually love and care for humanity and have the heart of Jesus, would you keep that to yourself? Would you not share that with everyone you came across who might potentially have a loved one or a friend or, or a neighbor that has cancer? Wouldn't you just spread that like wildfire? The, the question then becomes, if you would for that, if you'd be so excited about a temporary remedy uh, to a temporary sickness that eventually we're all going to die anyway, how much more excited should we be about the remedy and the solution to people's eternal problem, sin? Cancer is going to end eventually, either with death or healing. But eternal death, separation from God in eternity, God has presented us a solution in His Son. And He's, he's passed the baton, essentially, to us to say, now go and share. And He's not letting go. He's actually holding it with us. He's holding our hand the whole way. And He's saying, I want to partner with you because I, you can't do anything without me. That's what God wants you to know. So I'm not saying run without God. I am saying, are you running at all and sharing this at all the way John is? He's so excited, he's writing a letter. It might get him killed. That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you. In other words, is Jesus so good to you? So good to you that you find yourself sharing periodically in some form. Do you share him with other people? What does that mean? Do you teach other people what you know? Do you teach, teach other people and disciple other people with the knowledge God has given you? Are you excited about it? Or are you like that really like boring, unenthused, you know, vacuum salesman going door to door going, hey, you want this Hoover vacuum? No, I literally don't care. I'm going to go to the next house. Is there excitement about your relationship with God? Because for John, I just want you to know, there is excitement doesn't even capture the heart of John for how deeply he loves his Savior. <laughs> He deeply loves and values and appreciates the relationship he has with his Savior. Now watch what he says. Look, we're proclaiming to you the eternal life. Amen? Look at how he defines and qualifies that. So that you too may have fellowship with us. So, so John is saying, look, I'm sharing this message of Jesus with you. So when he says the word of life, it is a message about the one who is life and who is the word of God, right? And so John is saying, I'm sharing the gospel in a verbal or a written oral kind of way, and I'm sharing the message with you, which is about the word of God himself, who brings life. And you would go, why, John? Why are you sharing that with us? And he'd go, well, because I want you to have fellowship with us. And you go, John, who's the us? And John would go, well, all of the children of God. 
we have fellowship. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. With His Son, Jesus. So, in other words, for John, sharing the message of salvation is inviting people into a beautiful family where God is their father and Jesus is their perfect savior and protector and, and, and shepherd and, and they're cared for. It's, it's John inviting an orphan off the street into the most caring, loving, valuing family where you'll be over cared for and, and over protected and over loved. It's an abundance in a good way where there's, where's a, there's enough love for you to give to others and there's enough for you to share with others. John's inviting you into that. What's interesting is that concept itself kind of reframed the way I see evangelism. It was always like, hey, I'm just trying to get you to the Father. I'm just trying to get you to the Father. John doesn't negate that. He is about getting people to the Father through believing in the Son. But he's also saying, hey, what I have with my brothers and sisters in Christ, this, this beautiful family of God where he's the father and, and this is his divine family, it is so good. And I want you to be a part of it. In other words, he's excited about the fellowship he has with his brothers and sisters in Christ. That's almost a selling point for John. It's not just like, hey, come and have life. It's not just, hey, you don't have to die and you don't got to go to hell. It's, look at this beautiful family you're included in. Look at the brothers and sisters whom God is going to surround you with. Now, for a lot of Christians, they ain't too excited about their fellow brothers and sisters and the relationships they have. They're like, I just want to go to church and leave and go home because these people, yeah, just they drive me nuts. And John's going, oh, no, no, like they might drive you nuts, but oh, it is so sweet to have fellowship with brothers and sisters who have the same father and the same savior and the same faith. And he does say, look, our fellowship, community, intimacy is with the Father. Jesus will define eternal life like this. Okay? When he's praying his high priestly prayer, he says, this is eternal life. If you were to go, Jesus, what is eternal life? Because I've heard so many people butcher it and I'm confused. He'd go, well, He's praying to the Father. He goes, Father, that they would know you. That they would know you as the only true God. Not one among many. Not your side chick God. Not the God you only run to on the weekends. As the only true and living God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is eternal life? Biblically, it's intimate friendship with the living God through his son. Biblically, it's believing in the son to come into this beautiful thing called eternal life. And then that life is called a relationship and friendship with the creator of all things. He wants to have, he's not a boss and you're not his employee in that sense. There is a sense in which we do what our father tells us to do, but he's inviting you in to come and be loved, to come and be cared for, to come and know Him. To come and know Him. So when you think about eternal life, I really want you to, to wrestle with this. Are you more excited about the fact that you just don't have to die? Or are you more excited about the fact that you have an intimate, familiar relationship 
and friendship with God Almighty. Like, if God was not in heaven, would you still be excited about heaven? Or, or is God the reason you're excited about heaven? Because isn't heaven technically just where he is? where his abode is, and he dwells in heaven, right? And eventually heaven and earth will collide in new creation, and he'll recreate everything. But you have to ask yourself, dang, like, did I only believe because I don't want to die? Which isn't bad. But does that ever grow into, no, I believe and I love that I know the Father, that I know the Son in relationship? In other words, it's not just like, uh, the selling point for Christianity is not, hey, you get out of hell. It's, hey, you get to know God. Like you're, like the, the father you never had. Like the creator you were born to know. Like the one who satisfies your soul in a way that money can't, material possessions can't, perfect health can't, perfect convenience and safety and influence that, you know, where you're known by billions of people it could never satisfy the deep hole that is in your heart the way God can. Are you more excited about knowing him? And this is not about head knowledge where it's like, I have the information about God. It's that knowledge translates into I live for him. It's intimate familiarity. It's, it's the way a husband knows his wife. Take away the romantic sexual aspect, but the intimate familiarity where we go on dates and we invest and we live with each other and we care about each other's concerns and her heart slowly becomes mine and I really care for what she does and I, and I begin to be against what she is and our, and our hearts become united, right? And our minds become united. That's the relationship God is inviting people into. So when you preach the gospel, do you imagine you're just giving someone a get out of hell free card? Or are you actually giving them an invitation to the wedding feast that only the children of God get to attend, right? Or, the, or, or you know, are you giving, do you, do you picture yourself giving them an invitation to come and know the King of Kings? Because that, that's how John is framing this up. That's how John is framing this up. And if you go down uh, after Jesus prays, you know, to the Father, this is eternal life, um, or while he's praying, this is one of the things he says. I don't ask for these only, but I also ask for those who will believe through their word. What does Jesus ask for his church, for his, for his, um, his followers, his disciples? Well, here's what he prays. He prays that they would all be one. One heart, one mind, one ambition, one purpose, born of one spirit, having one faith, that there would be unity not uniformity where everyone's the same and we all got cranked out of God's you know, warehouse and here we are falling out of the con conveyor belt, but one where we have the same father so we pursue the same things and we're, we're you know, exercising our unique gifts and, and using our unique personalities and our unique places in, in the earth and we're operating in unity as the family of God. That's what Jesus prays. And he goes, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So, what makes the unity of the church possible? Well, we have to be grafted into or connected to the Father through the Son. 
so that the world may believe you've sent me. Unity and um, love and a mutual upbuilding and mission among the believers, that apparently is going to be more convincing to the world that the gospel we're sharing is real and true. And so he goes, well, I want you to have fellowship with us because our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. So John's going, look, let me just break it down for you very simply. I have a relationship with the creator of the universe. He's all powerful. He's unstoppable. He's sovereign. He's perfect love and mercy and compassion. And his son granted me life through his death and resurrection. I'm inviting you guys to come and enjoy this beautiful family and belong to this loving father and to believe in this gracious savior. That's, he's excited about relationship. Not the head knowledge, not the information, which by the way, that does translate into a better relationship should you actually, you know, pursue knowledge the right way. But the point is, what John is most concerned about is a relationship with eternal life himself. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That's an interesting statement. You're going, hmm, John is saying he'll have more joy if he just gets these words out. Exactly. It sounds like what Jesus says in John 15, huh? He does say in the upper room with the boys, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Does Jesus desire a fullness of joy for his people? Yes. Does he desire for his very own overflowing joy to be ours? Yes. How does that happen? Well, apparently it's connected to what he has spoken. The word of God relates to and affects your level of joy in life. Meaning, just like John is saying, I'm writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. He's not just saying my joy. He's saying our shared joy as the church. When we come to know the Father better, when we spend time in the scriptures and see Jesus for who he is and come to love him more, do you know what rises up inside of us? It's a greater joy. Verse five. I want you to notice, if I didn't explain this before, let me, I highlighted everything in red that John and the apostles have, have, have personally done or interacted with the eternal life, right? They've seen him, they testified to him, they've looked upon him, they've heard him, they've touched him. And everything in purple is a description of the word of life. He's from the beginning. He was made manifest. He was with the Father, right? And then everything is in blue is going to be any time Jesus is referenced. He's the word of life. He's the life. He's the eternal life, right? And if you're wondering, why are you convinced that that's God? Good question. Good question. The end of this letter, this is how John ends. We know that the Son of God has come, right? And you're like, yeah, where are you going with this? And he's given us understanding so that we may know him all throughout John's letter, man, 
come and know, come and know, come and know the Father, that we may know him who is true. And guess what? We are in him who is true. We are in his son, Jesus Christ. Look at how he describes Jesus, the last person he was talking about. He is the true God and eternal life. And you go, well, he's talking about um, uh, the him the who we can know through the Son, being the Father. And I go, well, hold on. Jesus has already been described and given the title of eternal life. He is eternal life. If you're like, who's eternal life? Jesus. So if he is eternal life, according to 1 John chapter 1, and according to John chapter 1, and according to John 11 and John uh, 14, if he is eternal life, he must also be, bingo, the true God. Because he's saying whoever he's describing is both these things. That doesn't mean the Father is any less God or not God. It means just like what John is trying to communicate in a very difficult way, there is a oneness shared among Jesus and the Father, so much so that Jesus is co-equal with the Father in his divinity. As emanating from the Father, he's the eternal word, perfect personification of, of the laws and the characters and the ways of God, perfect revelation of God. He is the eternal life. You can't say that about uh, some mere creation, right? Verse 5, this is the message we've heard from him. What I want you to see is the last, uh, the last subject John talked about was fellowship. So he's easing us in. He goes, I know eternal life. I saw him. I experienced him. We have fellowship. Let me talk about this fellowship. It's beautiful. Okay. And he's about to talk about what it looks like to have a fellowship relationship with God. This is the message we've heard from him and we proclaim to you. Faithfulness is not just knowing something, but exercising that knowledge, applying it, sharing it, teaching it, um, you know, using it, putting it to work, making that knowledge come to life through your lifestyle. And so John is doing that. He's heard a message and he's going and he's sharing what he's come to know about Jesus. You ready? Here's the message he's heard from God himself in the person of Jesus. God is light. For these last uh, five, six verses, he's suddenly going to start talking about the concept of light and darkness as it connects to fellowship. So, for your convenience, I've highlighted every instance of the word light or truth, something relating to what the truth or the light does. I've highlighted in blue, okay? In purple, you're going to see the opposite, darkness. Anything relating to darkness, anything darkness accomplishes, anything that is proof of darkness in your life. And then in green, you'll see fellowship. Okay, so, so blue represents light. Darkness is represented by purple. Just so you're like aware. If God is light, in him is no darkness at all. James 1.17 will tell us this. Every good gift... Every perfect gift is from above. So if there's anything good and perfect in your life, um, 
that, that produces a kind of joy that's consistent with the character of God. I'm not talking about sin. <laughs> I'm not talking about evil. I'm talking about good and perfect gifts. You know that came from your father, right? You know like you didn't achieve that on your own. You know you didn't like, that's not the product of your own efforts and abilities and that's God making that possible. Every good thing. We, we need to learn how to look at every good thing in life and go, wow, it, yes, I did work with God in this and, and use my gifts. And yes, I was faithful. Yes, I was responsible. But at the end of the day, I can do nothing without him. All of my efforts on its own could never have produced these good things I see in my life. It's God gracing my efforts. He allowed my, my, my efforts to produce this, these good things. Thank you. We need to learn how to thank him for every good thing in our lives. But every perfect thing comes down from the father of lights with whom there's no variance, variation or, or shadow due to change. In other words, there's no darkness in him. There's no potential for God to change. This is one of the attributes of God called immutability. I-M-M-U-T-A-L-I-B-I-L-I-T-Y, immutability. That means God is consistent, he does not change, he is faithful and loyal and committed, he will not shift, there's no potential for him to, you know, his character somehow shifts and now he's evil. He's always been who he always will be. He's consistent, he's reliable. And because he's the father of lights, that means there's no potential for darkness or shifting shadow in our God. That's good news, it's really good news. So if God is light, then no darkness is in him, right? Here's why John is saying that. He's not just letting you know, by the way, there's no darkness in God. He's going to make a point. If we say that we have fellowship with God, like if you say, I'm a Christian, I, I was baptized, I'm born again, I follow Jesus. Well, if you say that while you're walking in darkness, John says, well, I hate to break it to you, Tommy but you're lying. You're not practicing the truth. You're not practicing the truth. And you go, how dare you, John? You can't, you can't at all judge me. And John would go, mm, I can make an evaluation. I can't definitively declare anything about your soul as if to be the ultimate judge, but I can evaluate a tree and say, hey, if you're not practicing the truth at all, throughout your life and you say I know God those are two different things <laughs> your life doesn't match your confession so when that happens when you have a life of sin for the entirety of someone's life but they confess to know Jesus they confess I'm going to heaven I, I'm born again I was born on the altar and baptized you're like hmm, which one is is true well, the consistent way of life outweighs any confession. John's pretty explicitly clear. Now, he's going to get into this, and he's not saying Christians don't struggle with sin. He's not saying believers don't fight sin and often give in to sin. He's talking about someone who never practices the truth, and they're walking in the darkness. You know what it means to walk in the darkness? That's not just like I stumbled in. How did I get here? I just got to get back onto the light path. This is someone who's like, I'm staying 
in this darkness. I'm living in it. I'm walking in it. It's my habitual pattern and way of life. Which you would go, how is that even possible? Well, it's assumed that there, there must not be any conviction or a seared conscience or something's happening. But what John is saying is you're lying and you don't have fellowship with God. I didn't say it. He did. Take it how you will. But I think we should clarify what, what is the darkness. What is the darkness? Well, we know it's opposed to the light. We know this darkness is not found in God. We know this darkness is something that we can walk in. Okay? It seems to be referring to more of the moral aspect of spiritual darkness. Meaning, this is just evil. Sin. That which is morally uh, dishonorable to God. Sin. If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, well, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of His, of his Son, Jesus, cleanses us from all sin. Here's how some people read this. They go, oh, if I walk in the light, and if I have fellowship with believers, then the blood of Jesus will cleanse me from sin. No. He's adding on a truthful reality for those who walk in the light and have fellowship with other believers. Someone who has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. He's not adding on like, um, he's not listing out chronologically what happens. Hey, walk in the light and like obey God enough. Then you'll have fellowship with other believers and then Jesus will cleanse you from your sin. He's not speaking in, in chronology and listing out what happens sequentially. He's saying, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, well, that proves that we have fellowship with other believers. Why? Because when I'm living in holiness and walking in the ways of God, that's going to benefit my other brothers and sisters in my life. And it's going to strengthen our relationship. So not only is my fellowship with other believers strengthened by my own personal holiness and obedience, but my obedience to God and my walking in his light as inconsistent as it may be, okay, that's proof that I really am in the family of God, right? And by the way, just to remind you, the blood of Jesus does cleanse us from all sin, right? And that's why he's going to touch on sin for a minute, okay? Because sin is going to be a, a pretty consistent theme in 1 John, but it's like he's slowly introducing it. He's getting your feet wet. He ain't throwing you in the deep end quite yet. He will, but not yet. <laughs> okay, so the point here is, look, no darkness in God. Don't walk in the darkness. If you do, you're not practicing the truth. And if you claim to know Jesus, you're lying. But if you walk in the light, right, well, that proves, hey, your soul has been cleansed from all sin. Jesus has washed you by his blood. And you do have fellowship with other believers. You are in the family of God. Take heart. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Okay? This walking in the light should probably be defined, though. Because each of us is going to define that a little differently. So what we need to do is say, John, what do you mean, buddy? Please. Okay. He'll break it down in verse 8. If we say we don't have sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Oh, so that's what it means to walk in the darkness. 
or at least that's part of it, is you deny your own sinfulness right here. Uh, you, you deny it, maybe you excuse it, maybe you uh, neglect it, okay? Maybe you um, deceive yourself into thinking you're morally good without God, and I don't, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in his moral laws, I don't need to follow some invisible sky daddy, and in the process, you're denying your own sinfulness. And what you're saying is there is no God and there is no law and I haven't sinned and I'm doing pretty good and I'm morally good and if there's a good place to go after you die, I get in because hello, I don't have any sin. To deny your sinfulness is to explicitly state in no uncertain terms that you don't believe the truth of the gospel. And you're going, hmm, I don't follow. If you believe the gospel, you're saying, I believe in Jesus to save me. My question would be, what is he saving you from? And if it's not sin, what is it? Or if it's not, you know, the result of sin, the consequences of sin, what is he saving you from? And I heard someone answer it very poorly the other day, someone who has quite a, quite a big platform. You know, it's pretty startling and sobering to think about, wow, this guy has quite a big following, and he's telling people that God came to save them from themselves, which in some sense is true. But when you leave it at that, people just think, oh, God just wants me to be a better version of myself, and that's also partially true. The problem is, you're trying to be a better version of you, and you're trying not to be enslaved to you, right? without Jesus, and you're trying to do it on your own. And that's works-based salvation or humanistic morality where you say, I will be good on my own. And John's saying, bro, if you deny your sinfulness, if you deny the fact that you have transgressed God's command and you fall short of his perfect standard, then there's no reason for you to cry out for salvation. You don't see a need to be saved. So what are you adding Jesus to? A life of sin? When I believe, I'm saying, Jesus, my life is, is one of darkness, and I've sinned, and there's consequences, and I don't meet your perfect standard, God, so please save me from the consequences of my sin. You know, give me a new heart, make me new, forgive me, so that I am no longer under the penalty of sin. Save me from death, spiritual exile. People are in delusion. And they don't think they're, they're, they're bad. And they don't think they've sinned against a holy God. And they're deceiving themselves. And the fact that they don't admit sinfulness or they're, they're ignorant of it or they're truly believing they're morally good, it's proof the gospel has yet to take up, you know, uh, residency in their heart. They have yet to believe. I have yet to believe. So if denying my sin, if that's what it means to walk in the darkness... What do you think it's going to mean to walk in the light? I'll let you guys walk, uh, answer that in the chat. Like if, if walking in the darkness means I'm denying my sinfulness and my need for Jesus, and I can be morally good on my own, I'll get to heaven with my own good works. What does it mean to walk in the light? If that's the counter opposite of that idea. Come on. There's 128 of you in here. Someone's got to know something. Think about it. 
Yahaya Israel. Walking in the light is synonymous with being honest and confessing the truth about our sin. Yes. So let me, great answer. Let me clarify. There's the once for all confession of my sins when I believe in the gospel for the first time and Jesus cleanses me of all unrighteousness here. Doesn't say all past unrighteousness. Doesn't say all present unrighteousness. It just says all unrighteousness, which from the vantage point of the cross is all the sin I'll ever commit and have committed and ever and am currently struggling with, okay? So there is that once for all eternal confession where Jesus makes me new. There is also the daily need to confess my sins before God. What John has in mind here, okay, is that first initial confession of sin and belief in the gospel, okay? If you deny your sinfulness and you deny your need for Jesus, you're not walking in the light. Also, there's a secondary meaning and layer to that, that I can be a believer and have the Spirit of God and be struggling with sin, right? And I'm trying to fight that on my own and I'm trying to beat it on my own and I'm not bringing it to God, I'm not confessing it, I know it's wrong, I'm convicted, but I'm trying to handle it myself. I'll, I'll do enough good to make up for it. I'll go and feed the homeless this weekend and that'll, that'll help me really get in the zone so I don't struggle with the sin. No one has to know, I don't have to bring it before God. And you're not walking in the light with Jesus where you belong because number one, you're handling your sin on your own. And number two, you're not bringing it before the Father in confession. And potentially, a third reason is you're not bringing it to anyone to bring it to the light. One of the best and most practical ways to walk in the light of Jesus and to enjoy the beautiful radiance of his presence and his goodness and his joy and his love, one of the most practical ways to do that is to openly confess the sin you're struggling with in secret. The longer it sits in the darkness and festers and grows, it begins to have more of a grip on your heart. Maybe not where to the point it's like you're sinning a lot, but maybe it's like shame and condemnation and, and it cripples you from doing what God calls you to because you feel unworthy. And now you're missing out on advancing the kingdom because you're stuck on time out when God never put you on time out. And so there, there are layers to this. There's, hey, an unbeliever comes into the light when they first confess their sin and believe in the gospel. But you and I live in the light, right? By daily battling sin. And even when I stumble and give in, I confess that immediately and repent so I can come back into a way of life that's consistent with the word of God rather than sinning and being in opposition to the will of God for my life. So... You can be in self-deception even as a believer and still be going to heaven. It doesn't mean you can live in sin. That's not what I'm saying. I think God has actually put a unique defense mechanism in our spirits <laughs> called his, his word and a new heart and a new, um, a new spirit, right? I think he's, he's given us the necessary protective measures to keep us from living in sin. So as a believer... You and I will not, and I would even venture to say, I'm not Calvinist, but I will say we cannot live in habitual unrepentant sin. 
And I believe, because 1 John 3 speaks of that, I believe Hebrews uh, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 speaks of the new covenant and the new heart and the new mind and the new spirit and, and how God in Deuteronomy prophesies that eventually those who operate in the new covenant, he will effectively enable them to walk in his ways. He will cause them to walk in his statutes. And, and that's not crushing your free will. That's not violating your free will. When you're believing, that's what you're asking for. And so God puts that in place. So what I'm saying is, I don't see a true child of God being able to live uh, in unrepentant sin um, with no conviction, no change of heart, no remorse, and, and they just live in that the rest of their life. I don't see that as possible. That tells me they haven't come to really know the gospel and believe like they think. Even if they, they claim to know Jesus, that lifestyle of unrepentant sin, habitual pattern of darkness, it outweighs their confession, man. It does. And we need to be careful not to cast our judgment because at the end of the day, I and you and no person can definitively declare anyone eternally separated or, or in even eternally for sure grafted into Christ. There's so much that goes on in the deepest parts of a person that you and I don't see. We see the activity and the action and the behavior and, and the confession and the words and the interactions they have between people. That's what we see. But that's only half the equation. And yes, that flows from the heart, but there's a lot of deep recesses of a person's heart um, that is only evident to God and not us. So I'm just saying, look, however you qualify what it means to live in unrepentant sin and have no conviction and to stay in the darkness like with no confession, that just tells me that person has yet to come into fellowship with God. And I know people don't like that, but I have to tell you what the scriptures teach so that none of you are enabled to live in sin. I don't want no one walking away from this going, hey, that guy did tell me I'm under grace and I'm forgiven and I'm cleansed and I could periodically stumble into the darkness and I'm forgiven, I'm cool. I'm trying to enable you to live free from sin by the grace of God. So verse nine, in contrast, Okay. In contrast with the person who lives in darkness, we have the person who lives in the light. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins. So that darkness that once held sway over your heart, that sin that once dominated your life and was your master, the penalty of our sin that you know kept us away from God and kept us in eternal death, Jesus actually forgives us of that. Two questions you have to ask is, how can a just, perfectly righteous God declare all of my sins just forgiven because I believe in his son? The second question you have to ask is, how do I know God will actually do that? And both those questions can be answered kind of with the same thing by saying, um, because God is just and he is faithful. That's why John tags on, if we confess, he is faithful. I'm not the one that invented this whole believe and be forgiven thing. God is. I either take him at his word and believe that he's 
faithful and truthful and loyal and he follows what he says and he does what he... I either believe that or I don't. He's faithful regardless of whether I take him at his word. He's still faithful. He'll do what he said. If you confess and repent of sin, which is evidence of faith, I'm not making those two things different. They're two sides of the same coin. Faith and repentance go together. So if you confess, that's evidence of genuine faith in the gospel. God says, you will be forgiven. You're not responding to a God that you've made up in your own mind. You're responding to the revelation and the word of God that he's given to us. But also, look, he's just. Like, it's fair. It's right. In a courtroom, this is the just declaration from the ultimate righteous judge. He's saying, you are forgiven. And you're going, but I, I'm, I'm a criminal. I, I, I committed crime against you. I, I fell short of your laws. I, I dishonored you. I was an enemy of you. I hated you. I was a, a, a child of the devil under sin. Why would you forgive me? And he would go, because my son has justly paid for it in full. Every ounce of the penalty of our sin and evil and darkness, Jesus took on the cross. That's why he had to stay there. That's why he had to go there. To not just live the perfect life for us to be the perfect sacrifice. But on the cross, there's a great exchange. Romans 8 will tell us there's no condemnation for us and there's no penalty of sin for us who believe. Because on the cross, Jesus actually, uh, in his flesh, evil and sin, uh, you know, I don't know how you would explain it, but I guess took up residency in his body. Second uh, Corinthians uses the language of he became sin, which some people don't like. But I will say, in his flesh, sin itself was punished on the cross. So God is just to declare you forgiven and righteous because someone who is perfect and blameless and holy, he took your debt on himself. He paid for that sin in full with his precious blood. He fulfilled the law that none of us ever could. He died our death, took the legal consequence of sin, and then he rose to life three days later. Okay? That's why God can declare you forgiven and he remains perfectly just. And he's still a righteous judge because his son stepped in, laid down his life and said, I'll take the penalty. So God says, I promise I'll forgive you if you believe in my son. And faith is either believing and taking him at his word or not. And going, eh, I'm not a sinner. Or eh, if I have done bad, I'll just go and be good on my own terms. Or I'll try and make up for all the bad myself. And God's going, that won't make you forgiven. Notice, just to be clear, John wants you to understand, for those that are like, Jesus only forgives us of our past sins, not our present sins. If you confess, he cleanses us from, what does this say? Our past unrighteousness, um, the unrighteousness we're really, really, really sorry for, the unrighteousness we stop doing, uh, the unrighteousness that we, don't, that we avoid in the future. It says all unrighteousness. That's all sin. In fact, Hebrews will go on to say in the New Covenant, God promises, I will remember your sins no more. 
From God's vantage point, he sees all sin unfolded. He has a perfect revelation of human history unfolded. He sees every one of your sins. When God forgives you, he's not like only looking at the past, you know, up to that point, the, the last 30 years you've lived. He sees it all. And he goes, I know you'll sin now. I know you'll sin later. I know you've struggled with sin in your past. I'm forgiving you and cleansing you from all of that. Now, if you respond to that and go, yes, I can go live in sin and I'm forgiven, baby. You have not yet come to understand the gospel and you might really not know Christ. If that's your response is to abuse his grace and say, finally, I can get away with stuff because God forgives me. That's the completely wrong attitude and heart. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned. Like for those of you that are like, ah, I believe in sinless perfectionism. I never sin now that I've come to Christ. I have the Spirit of God. I never fail. You're part of this group of people. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. There are some people who are in such deception. They believe God has saved them and forgiven them. And they also believe, okay, that they themselves have achieved sinless perfectionism. If you honestly like think that, now I'm not saying God does not enable us to live free from sin. He does. He makes provision, gives us his spirit, gives us his word, sanctifies us, purifies us. But if you're only looking at your behaviors and going, ha, I never sin. Like, I, God has helped me conquer that. Like, by the grace of God, right? He enables it. You're only looking at the surface level idea of sin. Sin goes deeper. Sin has to do with your attitudes, your motives, your intentions, your thoughts, your fantasies, your words, your interactions with people, and also your actions. So before you claim that you've reached sinless perfectionism, before you claim that a true Christian will never ever sin for the rest of their life, otherwise they don't know the gospel, you really need to have a better theology on what sin is. God can enable us, and he does make provision for us to avoid sin. With every temptation comes a way out, okay? But sin again goes so much deeper that it has to do with often those undetected areas of our hearts and our ways of thinking and our attitudes and the way we treated them and, and what we evaluated about them. Sin is pride. Sin is judgment. Sin is hypocrisy. Sin is self-righteousness. And you're like, yes, it really is. Sin is deception. Sin is slandering someone, both with your words or your heart. Sin is gossip. Sin is lying. Sin is coveting and wanting something someone else has. So you're telling me that uh, by the grace of God, you say, you know, none of that ever touches you. It's never something you go through. You've got to be careful, man. You really have to be careful with that. Because again, a true believer won't live in sin. But a true child of God still has what we call the physical fleshly body, which in and of itself provides enough temptation um, for us to have our hands full. And it's the grace of God that gives us a way out, but it's also the grace of God that covers when we stumble. 
and forgives when we confess. That assumes you have a sin to confess. So, don't go sin willy-nilly. Don't go and live like this where you go, well, I'm just always gonna struggle with sin, so I should live in sin. Um, I've had a conversation like this with people before. I say, hey, the question becomes, hey, um, can a Christian live free from sin in every dimension? And I go, okay, let's think about this. God can, by his spirit and by his word, enable someone to live like that. The question then becomes, will he? Will, will that happen? And maybe within that question, there's a secondary question, which is, will the person choose to pursue that kind of a way of life? Jesus does say, be perfect as I am perfect, not to tell you how to live to stay saved, but to show you the standard you need to meet so that you go, I can't do that. And Jesus goes, well, I can. Here's your debt paid. Here's the perfection you lack. Now go and live like me from a place of security. If you ever think me avoiding sin keeps me saved, you believe in a self-righteous, possibly legalistic, works-based gospel. And you're going to destroy yourself and other people if you don't fix that. So I'm not saying sin is something we should just tolerate and be like, well, we're always going to give in. Don't live with that mentality. Go, God, you've given me the way out of every temptation. Help me. Every day I wake up, Lord, keep me from sin. And when I struggle, I, I confess and I repent. I say, Lord, you saw that and I didn't want to and I fought and I shouldn't have reacted like that. Forgive me. Help me to change. Change me from the inside out so I don't do that anymore. But God, thank you for your forgiveness. There are some people who would you know, fall into sin and they go, I guess I'm not a believer anymore. It's like, whoa, hold on. There are two extremes here. There's you thinking you're not a sinner and, and or sin is excused now because you're in the grace of God. And then there's the other extreme, which says sin is such a big deal that I have to avoid it at all costs to stay saved. Does that not minimize the grace and the work of Jesus by saying that? Are you essentially saying you add to his works? No, 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 I'm saying faith looks like, no, you're, re, you're not defining faith appropriately. And what our salvation really is, if you think it's, it's up to your upkeeping and you have to sustain yourself, where's that in scripture? Well, if you don't fall away, and what does fall away mean? Well, if you don't walk away, what does walk away mean? Does it sin enough? Is it, does it mean struggle with sin and give in this many times and then you're gone? What does it mean? No one ever like asks these questions. And frankly, it's frustrating because you're perpetuating a false gospel that drowns people in their inability to meet the standard of God while saying, no, Jesus met it for me, yet you're still trying to as if it's up to you to stay saved. Like, stop it. Just please stop it for the sake of all the people around you who are tired of your self-righteousness and for the sake of your own you know, peace and well-being, rest in his work and stop. Amen? That's the first chapter of 1 John. <laughs> That's the first chapter, man. Wait till we get to the second chapter. It gets, as the kids say, it gets lit. If you guys didn't know, this is Above Reproach Ministry, and you can find everything about this ministry at, ready, write this down, 
Tell your mama to type it down for you. AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have free study devotionals. We have free Bible study courses online. We have free Bible study workshops. We have a free Discord community where everyone gets to party and share what they're learning and gather around the scriptures and pray and fellowship. If you're looking for godly community, go join. All these links are in the YouTube description below. Um, I also have a book. It's called Fruitful. Um, it's the essential keys to living the most abundant, satisfying Christian life. Um, I'm in the talks with my publisher. Apparently someone got a copy of my book, but it turned out to not be my book. It turned out to be some pagan, new age, kind of demonic philosophy kind of book. And I thought, hmm, was that really coincidence? So I'm in talks with my publisher. I got to call them. Um, it's ridiculous. So if you get a copy that looks like it's not my book, message me. Let me know. Um, it's only happened once. I don't believe it'll happen again. I pray it doesn't. But um, all this free content is made possible because of generous supporters like you. Um, so thank you guys that do support me, my wife, and my two kids, this ministry. You know, our goal really is to um, uh, teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And so as we're doing that, we're moving people towards Jesus. That's our goal. And so all this free content is for anyone around the world. Uh, we're aiming to resource the church and give, we want to teach you how to read the Bible. That's why there's free Bible study courses and study devotionals and Bible study workshops and all the videos on YouTube, you know, organized topically, all the sermons. Um, you guys make this possible. And if you want to give and invest into what God is doing here, you can give straight from a debit or credit card right here on the donate page. You can give one time through PayPal, through Cash App or through Venmo. You can become a monthly um, supporter on Patreon and you get a bunch of exclusive benefits and access to um, exclusive content like my sermon notes I make available to everyone who's a supporter on Patreon. Um, you get discounts on our church merch, Christ-centered clothing, where you can represent Jesus on your body, right? Create opportunities to evangelize and, you know, let people know you love Jesus and all the proceeds go right into this content. Um, you also get a free copy of my book or whether it's physical or digital, based on the tier you sign up with. So it's a lot of cool stuff, man. A lot of cool stuff going on. Um, if you guys didn't know, we had our first official home church Bible study gathering. You might see our first official physical extension of this online ministry. We had that Saturday. And so be praying for us that God would continue to um, use that and give us direction and help us to, I guess, plant more physical communities all around the planet who are extensions of this ministry. Uh, one heart, one mind, one mission, one savior, one faith, right? So pray with us that God would lead us and help us to do what he's told us to do and be faithful. And I think that is it. Yep, that's it, guys. I love you all. Keep moving towards Jesus. As always, you know it. And uh, join the Discord call in about four or five minutes. I'll probably jump in for a little bit before I have to Make some phone calls that I'd rather not have to make, but you got to do it, right? And uh, keep moving towards Jesus, guys. Bye.